The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I have to laugh when I say food truth because I should probably add a qualifier that says food truth as we know it today in honor of my guests. Randy Kasten is a civil litigation attorney with 25 years experience. He has presided as a judge, acted as an arbitrator, written dozens of legal articles, edited legal newsletters, and given public presentations on legal topics. He's also the author of the book that we're going to be talking about today called Just Trust Me, Finding the Truth in a World of Spin. And I want to read a review comment by Larry Cohen, who is the founder and executive director of the Prevention Institute. And he says, Just Trust Me is a needed resource for finding truth in a world in which we are too accustomed to accepting corporate marketing propaganda as fact. Randy Kasten reveals how the lack of accurate and forthright information is destructive to our health, social institutions, and communities. As a prevention advocate, I appreciate the thorough analysis and strategies presented for navigating and reducing misinformation and distortion in the media. Just Trust Me is a valuable tool for advancing community well-being and equity. Randy, welcome. Thank you. Well, it's becoming increasingly difficult, I think, because of the onslaught of information that we have today as never before. You know, if we want information, we can go online. Most people now, I understand, are receiving news online. Newspapers have had to cut their budget, so we're not getting as much of that rich investigative reporting that we like. And in the world of food, nutrition, and agriculture, I think we see a large amount of spin misinformation and he said, she said kind of back and forth. So I hope that you can help us find the truth in what we're looking for. But let me ask you first, as an attorney, why did you write this book? It had a lot to do with being an attorney. The book is about perception, misperception, and how our vision of reality gets manipulated by other people, usually for their own personal or financial gain, and how we sometimes manipulate our own perceptions based on what we want to believe or what we find comfortable. The book was really an outgrowth of working as an attorney since the job of an attorney is to put the best face on a certain set of facts and sometimes pull it in a certain direction as far as can credibly be done. But my eyes were really opened at the point in my career when the law firm I was working at at the time discovered that its office manager had been embezzling from the law firm for several years And what was particularly astounding about it was not only that this was done amidst a bunch of attorneys who thought they were smart and were actually good attorneys, but that this woman had such an aura of respectability. She was a Sunday school teacher. She was a nice person. She actually did her job very well, except for the embezzlement. And how this could happen just really struck me as uh, something that I needed to look into and understand better. So what was it about her Besides the fact that she taught Sunday school, what was it about her persona that made her so trustworthy? 
Well, the funny thing is, it was really based on intuition, and it was based on instinct, and it was based on a lot of things that really didn't have any basis in fact, as it turned out. But I think, you know, that's very important because that's kind of how we live our lives in terms of how we make choices, including certainly choices about what we eat and who we trust. She was very friendly. She had an act together that covered up what she was actually doing in a very seamless way. And I think there were about 20 people who worked in this law firm, and I think if you'd asked everybody to make a list of the people that were most and least likely to embezzle, she would have been at the bottom of just about everybody's list just because of the way you know her sort of superficial appearance was. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we make so many decisions throughout the course of a day, and I was a little startled to think, yeah, we, we base an awful lot of our decisions on what's really superficial information. Mm-hmm. Well, you tell that story in the book, and what I thought was so interesting about your take on it was that there were different attitudes about this person, that yes, some people felt like they had been victimized and that this person was bad, but you also ask us to reflect on the fact that, hey, we should have been more careful in following the paper trail. And so you ask the reader to really look more inward before we blame another person for wrong actions. That's absolutely true. And one of the things I've learned from being an attorney, not even so much from the legal work itself, is that what you're, I think, talking about, which is the the proactive part of it. Um, I've done in recent years a lot of work with toxic torts, things like mold and asbestos. And in the course of that, I've gone to a lot of depositions where people will testify for days about their entire work history and sometimes their entire lives. And it can be a little tedious, but at the same time, the opportunity to actually hear somebody sit down and explain their entire life and talk about everything they've done, the choices they've made, can be pretty fascinating, especially when you hear dozens and dozens of people do this. And what has struck me, and I hate to put people into two different categories, but there does seem to be a real dichotomy between people who will be proactive and investigate things and ask questions and not just accept whatever's presented to them, and people who kind of do accept whatever's presented to them in the sense of whatever's on the menu, whatever's available in the store, whatever seems to sound good at the moment. The distinction between critical thinking and just accepting the world as it happens to come along. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you make clear in the book is that to find the truth, we have to be patient and we have to do the work. And unfortunately, in our society where we seem to be juggling so much, I mean, I actually had a patient who was working three jobs as a single mom. And she got sick. She didn't have time to exercise, let alone scratch the surface to find truth about maybe some food or exercise decisions that she might have been making. So we're really time-strapped, and we become more gullible or vulnerable, I should say, to people who do have this illusion or this aura of knowledge and we're more willing, I think, to say, okay, doctor, you know, you just tell me what to do. Oh, yeah, I think that's a huge temptation, and I think we all succumb to it in one way or another. And unfortunately, that's just true. I mean, our lives are busy. Uh, most people have challenges that they would never have elected to put into their lives, but there they are. So we're supposed to sit down and analyze everything and come up with 
all the answers and all the knowledge that allows us to make the best choices. That's probably unrealistic, but at the same time, the idea that we don't really have any power and we can't think, we can't question, that can be really dangerous and, and even deadly sometimes. Mm-hmm. You describe how we're surrounded by illusions. You talk about how we believe the stories that are told to us because they are the ones available. So the storytellers in our lives really take on tremendous importance. And the storytellers, say maybe 50 or 100 years ago, were more likely to be people, say, in our families, where the storytellers today are largely in the media. And we as consumers then have to be really good at picking out the truths versus the illusions And what I've learned from reading your book is that you yourself are an astute observer. I had no idea that there were multiple kinds of lies. I had no idea that people changed their tone of voice or the rhythm of their speech when they were telling a lie. And so it was very interesting to read all that. But from a health and nutrition perspective, then, I see lies all the time. And I don't know if they're outright lies as much as they are something that you describe as the simple absence of accurate information. You know, this idea of this critical thinking component, which says we have to ask what's missing from the message. Yeah, I, I have found with the book that what seems to intrigue people the most is the idea of deliberate lying, but I'm also convinced that that's probably the less of what we run into in our daily lives. And what we actually run into all the time is exactly what you're talking about. It's the absence of information. It's the omission of truth. Even when somebody who's telling you something knows that you probably would want that piece of information. Maybe a good example of that is this study that was in September of 2009 in the uh, American Journal of Clinical Nutritional Reporting about non-organic foods being just as nutritious as more expensive organic foods. And There was some controversy about the findings, I guess, but the main truth is that the focus on the nutritional aspect of it is just wrong. And in a way, that was the focus on the nutritional aspect of it is a lie because what the study was about and the contrast between organic and non-organic foods is that not what vitamins are in it or whatever, but what else is in the food. There are these poisons, pesticides, whatever, that we don't really want to ingest. But by distracting the focus and shifting people's perceptions away from that, you really skew the truth of what's what's in the study. That is a great example. In fact, I believe you're referring to the Stanford study that was recently published. And yeah. I saw the study itself, but then I also saw the press release that came out of Stanford. And here's a great example of if you just read the headline but not the report itself, you're going to be able to draw two different conclusions. And I think that was a great teaching tool in terms of media literacy because it encourages people to look beyond the headline and also to see who's funding the studies. And you you mentioned this when we're trying to tease out the truth, that it's very important to understand and ask, and it's difficult to find out sometimes, but who is funding the research? Yeah, of course, and uh, if it's a government study, it may be somewhat more reliable than a private study, but it's hard to go by names, and sometimes you would need to look at the organization specifically and find out more about the organization that's sponsoring it, and it can be pretty hard to uncover what the real motivation is, but there's always going to be some motivation behind some study, and 
without really understanding that, uh, understanding the results of the study or the purported results of it, I think is questionable. And how do you suggest that we tease that out? The Internet is certainly one good way. It's a double-edged sword because we're bombarded with so much false information or rumors or innuendo and stuff, but at the same time, it does give us access to a lot of information. If there's something that's particularly important, it may actually be worthwhile to do some research and investigation and decide whether or not that's something you want to rely on. Um, but as you said a minute ago, you know, that it's time-consuming. You need an Internet connection. You need a computer Maybe it's feasible, maybe it's not, but it doesn't mean that the information is important, even if it's not convenient. Mm -hmm. And then there's this willingness to believe what we want to believe and a reluctance to break out of what seems to have been the norm for maybe all of our lives. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of that gets into feelings of loyalty with people's families if recipes have been handed down, for example, through generations? Are you going to tear up grandma's recipe because it has lard in it? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> um, but, and I think, unfortunately, men do tend to be a little bit worse about this than, than women. I think men, <laughs> from what I've seen, seem to believe, generalizing, of course, that if it doesn't kill you within 30 minutes, it's probably okay to eat. Men tend to sort of be the barbecue kings if they do any cooking at all. And, of course, that involves charred meat, which is carcinogenic. <laughs> and women are sort of more the enforcers of, of healthy eating, which is, is something else I think we maybe need to break away from uh, because it is perception of food and realities uh, does get categorized into gender roles. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Randy Caston. He is a civil litigation attorney, and he is the author of a book called Just Trust Me, Finding the Truth in a World of Spin. I want to talk a little bit about kind of piggybacking onto that concept. So let's say there's been a farmer, and he's been using chemicals for his entire farming career, believing what he's been told, say, by the chemical industry that You've got to use these chemicals if you want to feed the world. And then all of a sudden, maybe that reality is shaken up a bit when he or she finds out that that particular pesticide or herbicide might be leading to birth defects or Parkinson's. And so how do you help people reconcile that? I mean, nobody wants to go home at the end of the day and say that their work has harmed society. So how do we how do we move away from that line of thinking and move us towards a more healthy practices that would support healthier communities? I think it's it's asking a lot in that situation of the farmer to make a decision based on what may be a financial sacrifice or a moral choice for the form, farmer. I think the, the better solution, and one that seems to be coming about from what I can see, is when there's consumer demand for, for example, organic foods, rather than people simply buying what's the cheapest. The farmer is, is put in a very difficult position, as, as everybody else who's connected with the farming industry uh, in that way. But if people, consumers, have the awareness uh, and the demand, yeah, things will change. And I, I think really think that's where the focus has to be. Okay, so let's get back to the consumer perspective then. And the consumer picks up the headline from the 
ill-reported study that says there's no difference. Maybe not nutritionally, but if you read below the headline, you find out, wow, there really is a difference with regard to pesticide residue. And then there might be a webinar from, well, there is, there is going to be a webinar from the Produce for Better Health Foundation basically telling consumers that the most important thing here is that you eat fruits and vegetables. Don't worry about the pesticide use. And then you've got another group that says, no, actually, the Pesticide Action Network, also based in California, that comes out and says, well, actually, we're finding that birth defects and all sorts of, of problems with brain function are related to pesticide use. So here we are. We need to find truth in a world of spin. How do we do it? <laughs> I think the simple answer is that we all have to be very proactive about it. I mean, if you want to see the world accurately, you have to be proactive. You can't be passive or you'll necessarily end up being manipulated. So to get back to what you said uh, about the motivations of people putting out certain kinds of propaganda, one really important thing is looking at who's funding the study, who's coming up with the information, why is this information being disseminated at all, and then really asking yourself, I think in a very personal way, what is the truth here? Who has the motivation to do something against my interests and what really are my interests if I try to ignore everybody else's motivations in the situation? Mm-hmm. You know, food producers can make labeling intentionally vague. I mean, you get, get things like this product is made with whole grains. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's made with 100% whole grains, but the consumer who wants to believe that they're eating in a healthy way is likely to accept the implication that it's made with 100% whole grains when it really isn't, and that's not exactly what the label says. Mm -hmm. So we need to overcome our own eagerness in a way to believe what we're told or believe what what the sales pitch is and look at the facts in a very dispassionate kind of way. Mm -hmm. Um, You get the same kind of thing with other labels, as I'm sure you've talked about on your show, you know, natural or free-range chicken, hormone-free organic, they don't all mean the same thing. And the FDA regulations on a lot of this stuff is pretty vague and sometimes pretty sketchy, pretty minimal. Um, It may only mean they don't have artificial color or artificial ingredients in the food. But convenience really gets in our way a lot of the time. We may have to drive farther to find a store that has healthier foods in it. Mm -hmm. It may be necessary to grow your own foods in some situations. But Being proactive in that way and seeking out information and understanding why we're making the choices we're making, not just because they sound attractive, but Mm -hmm. that they really are good choices, it's just so important. Well, one of the things that you mentioned that ties into the whole natural labeling, it's one of my pet peeves because, as you mentioned, the, the definition is sketchy at best. And consumers tend to think that natural in some cases is better than organic, and of course organic has a really strong set of national guidelines, or natural doesn't. And yet you write in the book about the need to be careful of the temptation to accept what becomes familiar as being true. And so you hear so often it's natural, it's good, without really understanding that the labeling regulations behind that word are not strong at all. So there is the need to do the research to find out what the label means, but it's also a wake-up call to say, you know, just because it's familiar, just because you've heard this story over and over again, doesn't mean that it's true. 
Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It may mean that it was well advertised or uh, it's been accepted in society uh, for a long time or within your particular social circle or whatever, but no, it doesn't mean it's true. It means it's just been accepted. That's particularly insidious when beliefs get into our consciousness that way. Mm -hmm. You also spend a good amount of time talking about language, the linguistics and connotations behind words. And I'll give you an example of that. In my world, I was at a, a social gathering the other evening and met someone whose research is based on crop protection. Well, crop protection is the new term to describe pesticides. So consumers, beware when you see the word crop protection. Really what we're talking about are pesticides. And we could frame that differently, too. I mean, we could say uh, child poisoning is my business or, you know, uh, water poisoning is my business. So the words that we choose are very carefully selected by marketers. How do we tease out the truth when we're hearing these different words? It can be really tough because there are people who are absolute experts at doing this. I mean, there are people in advertising agencies, there are people in political arenas like Frank Luntz who spend their entire careers coming up with these sort of catchy, cute phrases that sound great. But I think one of the biggest tip-offs is when you hear a phrase that sounds catchy like crop protection, it's it's a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> it absolutely means uh, this is probably a misrepresentation of, of the truth. You know, realtors are famous for this. You know, a tiny house is a cozy house. Right. Yeah, the fixer-upper is a mess. Yeah, yeah. Right. Red flags. Let me talk a little bit about your article that you wrote for Edutopia. It's a great article called Critical Thinking, a Necessary Skill in the Age of Spin. And this is involving the importance of teachers helping their students and actually having a responsibility to teach critical thinking. I mean, I can tell you what you should eat today with what's in front of you, but more importantly, I need to help you have the skills to decide what to eat when you're on your own, away from my counsel. So what is involved in critical thinking exactly? Well, let me, let me say first, I think you're absolutely right. Because sometimes when I think back on my, my own education, I think what's the most important thing I ever learned? It's it's not any of the substance of what I learned so much. It's the ability to think, learning how to think, learning how to ask questions, because everyday life is every day is different. Um, we're faced with new challenges, new questions, new uncertainties every day. Um, but the most important thing is not, I think, becoming complacent about that we have a full, complete knowledge of the world and that we are constantly, as disturbing it is to think this, we're constantly being assaulted by appeals to our reason. Uh, there are people who are trying to manipulate us uh, in terms of what we're going to believe. We're trying to manipulate ourselves because it's more comfortable to think certain things and to be proactive about that, uh, to constantly ask questions. And it's tiring. I mean, it's a lot easier to go through every day thinking, this is okay, this is okay, this is okay. But the truth is, it's not really okay, and if you don't ask that question every single day, you're going to get more and more off course. Mm -hmm. So, do you work with students at all? Do you work with teenagers? I don't. No, I did some student teaching a long time ago, so I developed a little bit of a sense of what it's like, but no, I don't, I don't currently. You describe vulnerabilities that people have, and I think teenagers, just 
reflecting back on our own youth, we're especially vulnerable because there's such this there's such a drive to fit in and to be accepted and to have friends. But those those common human drives, right? We want to have friends. We want to be popular. We want to be respected. And I think when we're teenagers, I've never met anyone who ever wanted to like relive their teen years. And part of it is because we're trying to figure out who we are and advertising is ruthless when it comes to individuals of that age. And they really pick on those vulnerabilities. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, for those listeners who might have teenagers at home, what are some ways that we can instill some good critical thinking skills to help them say thanks but no thanks? I think the the most important thing is preparation in, in that regard. If teenagers don't spend some time reflecting on what good values are, what good choices are before they're put in a position where their peers are really making the choices for them by peer pressure. Um, they're not going to have much of much hope of, of making a different choice. They're also going to have to understand the social dynamics and some of the sacrifices that are involved in going against the grain and saying, no, I don't think that's a good idea, and learning ways to say, I don't think that's a good idea without necessarily criticizing or threatening their peers. And that's that's a pretty tricky thing even for adults. I know I was at a, a gathering with some friends pretty recently and everybody was eating hot dogs and I really didn't feel like eating hot dogs. I just I don't think they're a great thing to eat. But I felt a little funny in, in not doing it. And you know, I'm in my fifties, so I can imagine what somebody in their teens uh, might feel in that situation. And it might be very tempting to just go with the flow and not only do it in that situation, but make a habit of it and then growing into adulthood, start making unhealthy choices based on what everybody else seems to be doing. But I, I think the, the emotional, the psychological, the sociological component of that is something that needs to be taught to kids if they're going to really think independently. And it's not about the topic of nutrition or any other particular topic as much as it is a social skill. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting, too, that you talk about how we don't always want the truth. It's easier not to know sometimes, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I think everybody is is guilty of that, and um, sometimes it's absolutely necessary. We don't want maybe information about things that are disturbing to us, things that are too inconvenient to do anything about, so we just kind of put it aside because, really, if we knew everything, I don't know how anybody could go through their daily life. We have to accept some things that might not be desirable, but at the same time, it's important to, I think, allow as much into our consciousness as we can possibly stand to in terms of what the realities of the world are. Mm-hmm. We just have a minute left. Do you want to leave us with a, a take-home message or a charge for action? I Well, in, in terms of truth, I think there are, there are a number of things I can say quickly. I think uh, it's important to keep in mind that facts really are nothing more than reliable patterns, and they're always worth questioning. That, As I said, none of us has a complete model of the world in our heads. None of us has a fully accurate model of the world in our heads. So we, we need to keep, to keep looking at it very carefully. We need to keep in mind that other people are constantly working to steer our perceptions in a direction that's going to benefit them. And we all do have some interest in believing what we want to believe. And I don't encourage anybody in saying all that to be you know, cynical about the world, but just to be critical in, in terms of thinking and to look at things objectively. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great send-off. Be skeptical, not cynical, right? That's exactly it. 
Well, Randy, I want to thank you so much for being my guest and for writing such an intriguing book. And we've been speaking with Randy Caston. He's a civil litigation attorney. He's got 25 years of experience. He's also the author of Just Trust Me, Finding the Truth in a World of Spin. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Randy, thank you again for the book and for being my guest. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it.